0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's podcast, where we'll take a further look into the voluntary carbon markets. My name is Sam Kamyans. I'm a partner at Allen & Overy in Washington, D.C., uh, specializing in renewable infrastructure and energy transition projects. Today, I'm joined by Moran Madras, who is in charge of environmental strategy at Vertree and she has extensive experience in the voluntary carbon markets, establishing and trading them, and we'll look into her insights today and, and learn more about the space. Today We've got a really amazing discussion, I think very thought provoking on the voluntary carbon market. So I became involved in this space, Uh, my background being a tax partner here, I work on the financing of renewables, carbon and hydrogen projects, really anything in the energy transition. And historically, what we've seen in renewables for say wind and solar is the development of the renewable electricity credit markets and renewable identification numbers for uh, fuels, renewable diesels and the like. And the way those programs have worked really spurred these technologies to get into the ground is that a regulatory body, take a state or California in in the U S will come along and say, utilities, you have these escalating requirements to have X amount of renewable power from all of your generation and the amount of renewable generation you have to have will escalate over time. If you don't satisfy your standards, there's going to be various penalties paid to the state with the intention being that at some point they get to 100% renewable generation. Uh, There's similar programs for fuels, which is administered by a federal body rather than than specific states that tell blenders and fuel producers, you have to satisfy renewable fuel standards. And in order to do so, you're gonna have to blend certain feedstocks into your fuels to make them cleaner. As you can imagine, this is going to require a whole host of renewable generation of fuels to come online and utilities don't have the capacity. And so independent producers go out there and they put assets into the ground that generate renewable power and it creates a renewable electricity credit that is tracked on a body that is administered by an independent party, but subject to regulatory frameworks. And so there's a very robust program administered by the state, verified by the state, and imposes legal obligations on parties to get renewable power generated within the state, otherwise they face penalties. Historically, those recs have been sold to the highest bidder or parties who want them, but at its core, they are required to be generated by a regulatory body. So I think today's podcast, and I'm going to turn it over to Murin, who's just got a wealth of knowledge in this space. I think the first question I want to ask you is, given this background of how Rex and Rins have evolved, can you touch on some of the similarities and differences between those products and how you're viewing the voluntary markets?
1: Absolutely, Sam, and great to be here and speaking to you all today. So... At their most fundamental levels, the motives behind all of these markets are essentially the same, right? And that is to facilitate transition into new sources of energy and power and ultimately enable this low carbon transition. So as as you were just explaining, you know, RECs were initiated to finance renewable energy project development, RINs incentivize you know increased production and use of renewable fuels. And now carbon credits are intended to finance activities around the world. That are avoiding additional carbon emissions or physically actually removing existing carbon from the atmosphere so the fundamental thesis behind all these market-based instruments is by putting a price on the externality you allow market participants to make smarter decisions about whether to invest in technologies or activities that will reduce the negative impact or participate in these markets and buy the credits and whatever form they take off of other participants So when we look at the voluntary carbon market, you know, the obvious and and fundamental difference when we compare it to RECS and RINs comes down to that V in the acronym, uh, voluntary. So we don't yet have a regulated or allowance-based regime for these types of credits. And so participants in a voluntary carbon market are doing so based on their own commitments and motivations that they set themselves. It's not being driven by a government or a regulatory mandate. Now, there are compliance carbon markets as well, but... You know, those have been around a bit longer, and today we're really focusing on this voluntary market because it's it's quite fascinating how it's emerged over the past few years. The imperatives and the motivation to do this increasingly come from the financial markets more broadly, right? As you've looked at the rise of ESG and sustainability linked financing, this has prompted corporates to really think a lot more about some of these issues. You pair that with increasing consumer awareness, pressure from younger generations, you know. The shareholders, there's this narrative of corporates facing more and more pressure to do the right thing, which is not necessarily new, but fundamentally, when you look at that global challenge of, of climate change and global warming, and you need to limit our temperature rise to less than one point five degrees Celsius, you know, pretty much everyone becomes short carbon, as we would say in the trading world. So. Under RFS, you might need a certain amount of fuels to blend in, otherwise you're short in the sense that you won't meet your requirements. In today's world, you're seeing more and more corporates recognize that even outside of regulatory or compliance regimes, they're actually short the emissions reductions necessary to do their part to limit climate change or to access cheaper costs of capital based on sustainability-linked financing. You know, and you pair this with the rise of actual compliance markets and carbon, the pressure from shareholders and financial institutions, and this has really prompted the market to take off. I think you, as the lawyers, can probably speak to this much better than me, but I'd also imagine public companies in particular who've made these commitments to set emissions reductions or net zero goals, they're probably going to be held to account, right? And and that deeply underpins a lot of this pressure and assumptions that we make about supply and demand and the trajectory of this market. The last thing I'll say on the the differences between these markets is that there is a very common belief across carbon markets that over time, those voluntary and existing compliance regimes will converge. And I think we start to see evidence of that looking at recent developments like the proposed SEC climate risk disclosure and, and CTFC activities.
0: That's great. That's really the background and really fascinating when you think about the promises and um, some of the reactions that these corporates have had to their shareholders and and other activists who want the people from which they're purchasing products to to lower their carbon footprint, to do everything they can to achieve net zero goals that they've set out. With that framework and where the pressures are coming from and and how these voluntary markets are evolving, can you talk a little bit about how the corporation would actually think about approaching the market. How are they going to price? What they're going to pay for voluntary? What kind of risks are they taking on? How do they authenticate? So maybe you could walk through an example of either a registry or a particular brand of, of voluntary and how a buyer would think about paying for it, how they can be certain that they've actually achieved the goals that they promised to their stakeholders. Any perspective you have on how those voluntaries are actually working in the real world it would be great for our audience.
1: Absolutely. It's a great question. And look, I think so much of the public and mainstream discourse today around the voluntary market in particular is one that still comes with a lot of skepticism, right? And negativity for exactly a lot of these reasons. It's a new market. Carbon credits are are a bit challenging to understand, right? You're you're talking about this nebulous gas in the atmosphere. And so I think it is worth noting how far the market has come and had some of that infrastructure and what that looks like. So corporates may set these goals, and then ultimately they have to make choices, right, between where they invest in activities in their own value chain or their own operations or technologies they might be able to invest in, the prices associated with those, and then also how those change over time, right? And that's a lot of what my team spends time working at. And ultimately, for most companies, there's always going to be a delta there, right? There's always going to be some unavoidable emissions that you cannot eliminate yourself. And that's really where the purpose of carbon credits are meant to come in. They're not meant to buy your way out of a problem. You know, the best practice principles that have been set in this industry, it's really complementary, and it goes back to that point of it being a market-based instrument, right? We're trying to leverage financial markets to incentivize people to make the right decision. So if you're a corporate and you have your net zero goal, you know, you've sort of understood, okay, this is how many of my emissions I can abate through maybe, you know, new types of technologies in my factories or cutting down on business travel or switching to renewable energy procurement at my offices. That delta that you have left to fill with credits, you know, you you do have some considerations to make. And I think one of the biggest complexities in the voluntary market today is that you have many different project types, right? There's Renewable energy credits, which tend to be a bit older, and legacy from the Kyoto Protocol and CDM market days. You have forestry and, and more broadly what we call nature-based credits, so anything coming from land management, land use practices. You have tech-based credits ranging from things like energy efficiency to really cutting edge, you know, initiatives around carbon capture and storage. So all of these different credits can essentially be priced at different price points and also come with different levels of what we call delivery risk. Because the timeframe of a carbon credit project, you know, it has a lifetime. And especially when you look at nature-based projects, you know, the day that you acquire the land or protect the land or plant the seeds to the, you know, the trees are going to take a few years to grow, for example. So these are all the different multitudes of factors to think about. But, you know, one of the really significant evolutions over the past, year or two, perhaps the biggest development has been around increased price transparency, and that's come with the emergence of exchange traded contracts, like the NGO, for example. So historically, most trades, if you were participating in the voluntary carbon market and you were a corporate looking to buy, you know, you would just go over the counter into the spot market, as we call it, and and you would see what's out there today and what are the prices and just let me buy it at a fixed price today, right? But what you've seen now is more exchange platforms for buying and selling, and including futures, these voluntary credits have emerged. So, mid last year, CBL launched the NGO product. And basically, now any nature based credit that has what we call a CCB standard certification on top of that can trade on the NGO exchange. And just for awareness, CCB is an additional label or marker on top of the standard VERA certification that sort of verifies a project has met certain standards around providing climate, community and biodiversity impacts. And VERA is one of the main registries today. It is, it is the biggest by volume and VERA is quite notable. And, and for example, the projects that we finance and develop are all VERA certified because that VERA CCB qualification allows you to trade on that NGO index. And this is important because with regular trading, there's now an observable price for those nature-based credits. And with that price as a benchmark, you get greater transparency about what the fair value of one of these voluntary credits should be. So now all nature-based voluntary credits can actually be priced relative to the NGO or one of the other emerging exchange contracts. So it allows you to track prices over time, construct forward curves and better assess that future value risk which becomes really valuable, you know, not only for the the traders of the world, but most importantly for the corporates and even governments and all decision makers, because they're able to better assess those trade offs I'm speaking about between what makes sense to invest in today versus where do I need to offset? How does that change over time? and, And most importantly, how do we get our emissions reduced in a cost efficient way? I'll pause there. I'm happy to elaborate a bit more on on some and the registries, but, you know, I think it can get quite complex and technical quite quickly. Um, so hope that is somewhat helpful as an initial overview.
0: Absolutely. That's very helpful as we think about, okay, how is the corporation going to go out and feel comfortable that it's purchasing the right type of contract in order to satisfy its reduction goals and with the transparency and the market-based products that are coming out there, I think another very, very important point as I think about the history of RECs and RINs is that you have a pricing mechanism, you have some certainty as to what the value is going to look like building off of your point with the forward curves and understanding what the futures markets might look like. With that background, the RECs and the RINs have been used as a very powerful financing tool because the lenders, while they might not give 100% credit to a lot of these credits out there, they do recognize it as an important stream of cash flow for the projects. I think part of what gives them comfort is that the states have historically not overturned or put out any negative regulations impacting the RECs, and the federal government hasn't negatively impacted the need any, in any sense. With that, in a voluntary world without a government body, do you see voluntaries providing the same type of liquidity that could be used as a financing tool, if we kind of move away from the corporate purchaser and work and look at the party putting the asset into the ground or planting the trees. Are they going to be able, or do you think they might be able to look to the stream of money that they're going to generate from these sales to finance carbon capture or hydrogen or other low carbon projects in the future?
1: So if you zoom out, I think that's ultimately the end goal of this market to scale, attract more financing, generate liquidity, and essentially keep reinvesting in itself. At the end of the day, we're trying to finance the entire decarbonization transition, and that goes beyond just the credits themselves and specific abatement technique or tree put in the ground. In theory, there's nothing stopping that from expanding to all sorts of technology types and innovative solutions to mitigate or remove carbon from the atmosphere. If something is enabling additional reductions or solutions to help us get to that end zero end state, and we can prove it with a methodology and issue a credit, in theory, that's fair game. But there is an important nuance here when we think about the project finance angle. You know, traditionally compliance carbon markets like those covering the power and industrial sectors in Europe or California system or Reggie in the Northeast US. These regulated markets and the cap and trade systems they've put in place really drives that financing and sends signals to asset owners because they force participants to think about the financial trade-offs between using their allocations, buying more, or investing in their own operations to avoid hitting or exceeding that cap on emissions. This has a lot of potential to spur increased innovation and in technology financing and commercialization especially in the context of that global climate challenge and the increasing focus that we see on associated tech that can really enable the energy transition. So things like carbon capture and storage or hydrogen. But the line can get somewhat blurry here on the role of the voluntary carbon market or BCM versus existing or future potential compliance markets. In reality, there are carbon capture, for example, methodologies in development within the BCM today and this could hold true for an array of climate-related tech as the market continues to expand. I think in the absence of more broad coverage in regulated cap-and-trade systems, it's certainly not impossible that we'll start to see more and more financing directed into low-carbon projects through the voluntary market. And, you know, already the VCM has proven to be an incredibly powerful tool for doing just this, for financing these project activities that enable above and beyond abatement of carbon. Remember, this market is predominantly corporates taking action into their own hands, so when you think about it, that really makes it impressive and fascinating that the voluntary market exists and has grown at all. And I think that's a strong signal. You know, the fact that it's still growing, people are investing, you're seeing more and more interest and capital being attracted into the space, you know, that extends to the project developer and asset owner level as well. And there are a lot of folks out there today. Investigating whether the VCM is a viable tool to help them finance their project activities and get things off the ground that otherwise wouldn't happen. You also can't really discount the corporate angle because when you look at companies today who have committed to these science-based targets, for example, you know, they represent over $38 trillion in the global economy. And with the public commitments that they've made, or, you know, at times their future business models at stake they're increasingly looking at making investments directly themselves, right, and participating in environmental commodity markets in a much more substantive way. So there's a lot of potential here to mobilize financing. You know, overall, I'm I'm fairly bullish on the potential for carbon markets to drive project financing for low carbon tech, but whether that occurs through the voluntary or regulated markets, or both, will ultimately just continue to be an evolving nuance, realistically. I did want to go back to one point as well, that links to the registries in the previous question, you know, voluntary carbon still faces a lot of skepticism, which is part of why there are sometimes challenges in unlocking financing and generating more liquidity. But in a way, and particularly when you look at the supply side and projects and, and these asset owners, you know, it's actually one of the more transparent markets that exists today. Every single legitimate and high quality credit, an important caveat is certified by standards body, right? Vera gold standard being the largest. You also have car and ECR and the level of detail in a lot of those methodologies, especially in the newer ones, the fact that the Vera registry is public, you know, I think we'd be hard pressed to get this level of supply transparency in, in many other markets. So, you know, a lot of the conversations around needing more quality and integrity to spur investment can be doing a bit of a disservice in some ways. And I think a lot of us would like to flip the switch focus on the improvements and the robustness of many of these methodologies for generating credits and really how far the market has come. I think ultimately the financing will get there. And many of us are also still looking at regulated markets as a great example, right? You know, what can we learn? What parallels can we draw? How can the voluntary market continue to grow and scale in a way that follows the trajectory that the REC and RID markets have set?
0: Great, great. I appreciate the optimism and bullishness of, of these voluntaries being used as a tool to finance these, well, what's going to be very important projects for countries to meet their net zero goals and their carbon reduction goals by, by 2050 or other internal metrics they've set themselves. If I kind of pull back, I'm a party that is looking to optimize my carbon footprint and I want to be as green as I can. And I'm looking at the voluntary market and I'm looking at the regulated markets. In your view, what are some of the key points that a person looking at these two products might think through as they determine which route they would go under? Are there any major points that that you would identify for people to put into their thinking matrix as they compare uh, the voluntary credits to what's put out in the REC and the RIN regulated markets?
1: Yes. I mean, they're markets that are serving different needs, right? So in our experience people generally participate in the regulatory markets because they have to, right? And if you're in Europe, I sit over in Europe, you know, you you are in the emissions covered sectors by the EU ETS, you know, you really have an obligation. Same in the United States, right? There's, you know, you have this obligation if you're a certain type of fuel producer or provider to participate in the rec and rent markets. I think voluntary, you know, if you're considering playing in that space, you're doing it for that fundamentally different reason, right? It's not because you have to, it's usually a sort of next level commitment that goes beyond whatever that regulated market is telling you to do and and is really trying to demonstrate something additional. So whether that is, you know, accessing sustainability linked preferential financing, whether you're trying to differentiate yourself versus competitors. Very often you see it, you know, for product offerings where people are tapping into the voluntary market to say, I've assessed the life cycle emissions of this product that I'm selling and I've actually needed carbon neutral, right? So it it becomes really interestingly a lot more innovative in some ways, and I think that's one of the key differences in this market. And one of the things I love about it is very often, again, we construe voluntary as, as negative, right? because it's unregulated, it's confusing, you know, there's different price points, but on the flip side of that, I think we can capitalize on the position the market's in and the fact that it is more well open and it can be more innovative. and. Ultimately, when you look at marketing of things like voluntary credits, you're not facing the same limitations that you face in a regulated markets. So corporate decision makers, you know, I really always encourage them to think about how participating in this market is actually going to help you to achieve other goals beyond just meeting your compliance demands and yes, reducing your emissions. Because, you know, we're living in a world where you can really set yourself apart by offering a more sustainable product, service, by differentiating yourself and increasingly you know, as, as a mechanism as well to attract and retain talent, which is quite fascinating. Another consideration, you know, if you're looking at a corporate deciding or assessing between the compliance and the voluntary markets, is that going back to that idea that over time, there is a likelihood that these markets will converge, right? And and more and more jurisdictions will put in place compliance regimes. And you start to see evidence of that already. I mean, a number of countries and regions have done this over the past few years. A really key benefit to potentially participating in the voluntary market today is you're setting yourself up and, and essentially you can hedge better for your long-term risk. So today, you know, you can enter long-term offtake agreements, you can directly finance and, and get greenfield projects off the ground by working with a developer. You know, there are many different avenues to participate in that are more flexible and are going to give a corporate buyer much better price points in the long term and more flexibility to enter and, and procure different project types that might be aligned with strategic goals. Whereas if you wait until this becomes a regulatory requirement, you know, looking at the fundamental analysis today, you're probably looking at much higher prices and much more rigidity when it comes to the different types of project availability and things you can do with them. So there's a lot to be said for getting ahead of this today. And in particular, in the voluntary market, the rise of these traded contracts and the ability to look at futures, we can now do long-term floating price off-take agreements, which enable you to directly access the market, guarantee that you are going to meet those long-term net zero goals, guaranteed delivery methods. And I think that's really worth considering. You don't want to wait until it's forced upon you in a regulatory or compliance sense. So, you know, I think those are all the different considerations. Financing arguably is always still more complex on the voluntary side, but we just continue to need people to be willing to dip their toes in. Removals in particular, the, the types of carbon projects that physically take carbon out of the atmosphere, these need a lot of investment and you're still a lot more demand in the market, yet not as much supply pipeline being built. This is largely because of that different time horizon, right? Um, removals require a lot more financing upfront, and then often will take longer to deliver on the back end. So investing in carbon doesn't look like a typical ticket, right, going back to that finance discussion. But I think you want to really assess the opportunities associated with it when you're operating the voluntary space and, and see how you can use that to a strategic advantage.
0: Great. Very encouraging in terms of how to look at it from a voluntary versus a regulated perspective. And I think in the United States anyway, with the Inflation Reduction Act, pulling a lot of capital towards projects that are going to have a voluntary component to them. it seems that we're in a very exciting space where the industry is going to get built out, new projects are going to come. And it's really encouraging to see how important voluntaries will be and how... They are going down a path to achieve a lot of the financing goals that are necessary to accelerate the transition. here. So thank you very much, Moran, for your time and your expertise. That'll conclude today's comments about the voluntary carbon space. I trust that everybody in our audience found this to be extremely insightful and we appreciate your wisdom and your expertise in this area. Thank you for spending your time with us and thank you to the audience for listening. Um,